All right, Hari, are you ready? Yes, sir, yeah. All right, three, two, one, let's jam. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein, and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. In this episode, I am joined by Hari Krishnan, head of volatility strategies at SCT Capital and author of the books Second Leg Down and Market Tremors. This is Hari's second appearance on the show, but he comes to us with a very different topic, how to develop a low carry hedge for a commodity bull market. Taking a similar line of thinking to his book Market Tremors, Hari evaluates the market through the perspective of both commodity producers and consumers. By understanding their business incentives, Hari believes he's better able to understand their market positioning and the potential imbalances created in both futures and options markets. We discuss the conditional impacts of price on real-world costs, how perishability impacts derivatives markets, and the influence of seasonality. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Hari Krishnan. Hari, welcome back to the podcast This is going to be a fun episode because for those who know your prior work, either the books you've written or have listened to podcast episodes you've been on in the past, this is going to be fresh new material, right? This might be never heard before. I feel good about it. feel a little scared about it, but it's going to be great. I think it's going to be great. So what I will urge guests to do in light of that this is new material and there's a lot to tackle and Hari has been on the podcast before. We're not going to get into background. I certainly would urge you to listen to the prior episode, but we're just going to dive right in. And the first question I want to ask is, at a high level with this new research you are doing, what question did you set out to answer and why were you even asking it in the first place? Well, to be honest, it was client directed. So I had a client and I have a friend. His name is Mark Roberts and he comes from a series of generations, both in Eastern Europe and the US, of metals traders. And his business had basically been that he would go out into the markets and buy scrap steel when it was cheap, stick it in a warehouse, and then wait for the market price to go up and sell it. And given the current interest in a commodity bull market super cycle, he said, can we do the same thing without actually taking ownership of the physical? So can we do at least some approximation of what grain companies do or metals companies or energy companies in kind of a paper farming context? So we use financial instruments. Could we use financial instruments to buy depressed commodities, warehouse them in quotes, and then profit if there were big upside moves in the stuff that we bought? And that was the genesis of it. And To be frank, I wasn't super interested in it at first because I thought, you know, I'm a financials guy. Big deal. But that's what I thought. But then I realized that hedging and warehousing of commodities is essentially the same problem, just on the different side of the distribution. 
So that's kind of the backstory to it. The problem, and I guess, objective of what you're trying to solve is somewhat dependent upon this view of a strong secular bull market in physical commodities. And so we'll just start with the baseline assumption that that's true. Assume it's a given and, and that is our view. Can you talk through what some of the challenges are that investors face when trying to position themselves for such an environment? Yeah, a lot of commodities now are cheap. And we could go into the details as to how that impacts one's interpretation of where the economy is globally, but I won't focus on that for now. What I will say is that a lot of commodities are cheap. And so if you go out and try and buy futures and roll them, you actually pay a pretty punitive cost because a cheap commodity typically implies that the forward curve is in contango. So the same commodity for future delivery trades at a premium, often a significant premium to the spot. And you can go down a list of markets, wheat, which is pretty depressed, natural gas, the poster child of contango, corn, cotton, copper is even relatively cheap. All of these things are trading in severe contango. So if you try to own them, if you feel there is a fundamental driver and you try and be a value buyer of this stuff, you're going to be eaten alive by roll costs. You're constantly going to be buying high and selling low to keep the position on. And so the naive approach, which is often employed in exchange-traded products, some of which are quite intelligently designed, but nonetheless suffer from issues of curve dynamics overwhelming any benefit you would get from buying and trying to profit from changes in the spot. So that's a big issue. So before we get into the details, and there's quite a few details to get into, I should stress that in preparation for this podcast, you sent me a presentation deck that I think violated every good presentation deck quality, which is, you know, I think you had hundreds <laughs> of words per slide for me to digest through, but it was certainly lots of fun details to dig into. So before we get into all that and try to unpack it, can you maybe take a big step back and explain your general solution to this problem? What are you generally looking to trade What's your general approach? Maybe what sort of structure are you generally looking to express that approach with? Well, there are two sides to the problem. One is more fundamentally based and discretionary, where we are tapping into experts in the field in specific markets and trying to identify commodities which, when cheap, we can screen for that easily, may have a catalyst moving forward. That's one side of this idea. But that's harder to explain in any detail. The other side is engineering solutions that allow us to capture upside with minimal carry costs. Now, I don't know if that's the best answer to your question from a very high level, but there are good reasons in various markets why commodities may go up, whether it's questions of food security, weather volatility, geopolitics, you can go down the line, demographics, changing preferences as the middle class grows in certain parts of the world. I want to be able to supply to clients exposure to those things where the timing is less of an issue than usual. So, you know, it's a bit like volatility trading is very similar. Buying puts or buying the VIX is a very sensible thing to do. And a lot of people are long, but if you have to face 5% a month roll costs, then timing becomes a huge issue. 
And the whole point of hedging or the whole point of expressing a long-term secular bull market view is to minimize the impact of timing, entry and exit timing. And that's basically what I'm trying to do with this enterprise, let's say. Now, it should come as no surprise to anyone who follows your work that your approach to this is through trading the options on the futures. Can you talk a little bit about, again, high level, what you're looking at there, how you're looking to express trades and what the structure might look like? Sure. Well, there's a futures component to it, too. So let me start with that. And different markets behave in different ways. And what I've tried to do is make a systematic or a semi-systematic study of where the value lies in different markets in identifying points on the term structure to buy or sell, but generally buy, because this is a long biased idea. I'll give you one example. In many grain markets, there's a harvest, at least a North American harvest. So if you look at, say, corn or beans, soybeans, the December contract or the November contract in a given year tends to be reasonably reflective of the price at harvest, because harvest occurs shortly before that. Now, typically those futures trade quite expensive early on. And they do because there's a risk premium built in, in the same way that risk premium are built into other markets. It's not certain how the harvest is going to be. Most harvests historically, if you take out the weather volatility component, have been fairly good. A median harvest is fairly good. So what you find is that that futures contract as an expression of a bullish view on corn, wheat, beans, or whatever, has some really nasty carry characteristics to it, or nasty bleed characteristics, because most years, as soon as the harvest is thought to be a decent one, all the value will drain out of that futures contract. So that's something to avoid. And there's an analogy with hedging, which is that my approach to hedging was always avoid the options that everyone wants to buy and do other stuff. Maybe sell a few of those and use that to finance overbuying of other things, but certainly avoid them. And so in terms of constructing futures trades, let's say in the grains markets, the old crop is the best futures contract to hold. Why is that? Because there's only the supply that's in the bin. All the supply that's available, it's not coming out of the ground anytime soon. I know that there are subtleties to this. Brazil grows soybeans and corn just like North America does, but let's keep it simple for now for the purposes of understanding the idea. So all things being equal, you want to be an owner of the old crop because you know that if there's a shock of some kind or a negative event in terms of the new harvest, you're owning something that's going to A, hold its value pretty well because of the uncertainty about the new harvest, and B, profit quite dramatically in the short term, should the new harvest look dire. That's an example of something you would do in the grains markets that a lot of people wouldn't realize if they just think in terms of, oh, well, we know what the bleed is of the front month versus the third month or the back month, let's say. And so we'll buy some back month, some of the third live contract and some of the front, which is a perfectly decent idea. I mean, it's good first pass. I think there's a group called Tucrian. I hope I don't mispronounce their name. They have a series of grain ETFs and mixtures of grains that do exactly that. And that is not a bad thing to do. Uh, by no means critical of that, but it misses out on some essential dynamics of the grain markets that would allow me to be more efficient in expressing a long view for a client by knowing 
actually what's going on. And that's a big deal to me because even though I am a quant, I do believe that domain knowledge is extremely important in any market you wish to trade over and above a highly diversified, say, trend system, which has a lot of value because you're not making assumptions. And we could definitely go into that debate too, because domain knowledge comes with a certain amount of risk. If you don't do it thoroughly enough or you miss the main points, you may wind up doing more harm than good. But I've really made an effort to rely on some experts and do a ton of data analysis with our team at SET to get around that. On the options side, it's a little bit different. There, it was kind of like a Market Tremors thing. So the second book that I wrote with Ash Bennington was called Market Tremors. And the idea there was to figure out where the big positioning was. A lot of that was an extension of squeeze metrics or Jem Carson's type work. A lot of it was central banking impact. Some of it was ETFs and so on. But there was also a high yield piece just to end the plug. But positioning became something that was really important to me. And I had never really understood how to read commitment of traders reports. I just dumped them into some kind of supervised or unsupervised learning module and saw what I got. But I realized that you really needed to know what was going on in order to make sense of it. And what we have found is various biases that exist in the futures and options markets by real end users. Again, I'll focus on grains. So to pick a single market corn, there are two sides to the hedge. It's not like the S&P. In the S&P, you can assume as a first pass that everyone's long. So they're either going to be buying puts or put spreads or selling calls for income. In the commodities markets, you'd think there wouldn't be any structural imbalances sort of prima facie, because they're producers and end users of any commodity. So in corn or wheat, they're farmers on the one side. On the other side, they're big food companies, food processors, and so on. And you'd think that they would offset, but they don't really, because end users and farmers have different risks. A farmer is directly impacted by price. That's where their revenue is coming from. So they want to lock in a decent price or they want to skim a little income off by selling calls. There's a variety of things they can do, but typically they're going to be selling futures because they want to lock in a price that they can get at harvest. On the other hand, an end user is a little different because they're not directly impacted by, say, wheat or corn prices, but they are they are directly impacted, I should be very clear here, but it's more an impact on their margins. It's not hitting them one-to-one. -one. So they can either pass on the added cost to the consumer, they can put less in their box or bag, or they can engage in other activities. They can substitute one grain for another, they can promote different products in their cereal line or whatever. So if you look at futures hedging, it tends to be short biased by end users. There's more short open interest among producers plus end users than there is long open interest. And the reason for that is the producers have different hedging needs than the end users. So you see that bias. But in the options markets, it becomes even more interesting because the farmer or the producer has many options that the end user doesn't really get concerned about. So again, to pick one market where I can be, give you a lot of details, a farmer, yes, could sell calls against their crop. Fine. They own the crop. 
as long as they have the right facility with the bank that they interact with so that there's offsetting risk in their crop ownership vis-a-vis what they do in the futures and options markets, then they can sell calls, but they can also sell the crop and buy calls, which is a form of re-ownership of the crop. I would call that paper farming. Whether that's optimal or isn't is not necessarily the question. The point is that if you need cash and you're a farmer, selling the crop gives you cash. But if you're a permable, because you just love corn or you love wheat, you can re-own it much more cheaply with fixed risk by going into the options market. So a producer will have somewhat symmetric desire if you go across producers to buy and sell calls. Conversely, the end user is going to be a net buyer as a rule because, and a volatility insensitive one too, perhaps, because they just want to hedge against a really decent size move in the underlying commodity. So you do get that asymmetry there, which is very interesting when you start building strategies, option strategies around end user biases. Now, it is true that there isn't massive liquidity in many of these markets, at least in the listed set up, but there is some, certainly in the biggest commodities. And in addition to that, there are structures that you can put on that take advantage of all of this volatility insensitive activity that are very difficult to put on, say, in the rates markets where everyone is laser focused on conditional outcomes and things tend to be priced relatively efficiently. Rates have been one of the hardest areas to do these sorts of positional biased analyses because there is a ton of efficiency and the two-sided nature of it is far more symmetric. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, but I want to start with one of the things you, you said at the end. No, that, that'll lead me right into my next four or five questions. But one of the things you said right there at the end was sort of this volatility agnostic buying. And the phrase that comes to mind for me is when you're a hammer, everything is a nail. And I am a trend follower historically, spent the last 15 years of my career focused predominantly on trend following. And so when you pose this question to me of how do I have a long bias with less carry my initial thought was, well, why wouldn't you just do some sort of long, flat trend following program, right? In fact, I even thought options to me, which are very related in many ways, like a call option is very similar to the delta profile of a long, flat trend following program. I would argue intellectually, you shouldn't be trading those options unless you have a view on the implied probability. It's not a instrument for expressing a directional bet. So I pose sort of the open question to you, which is why look at the options market? Why not just perhaps do something simpler like long, flat trend following in the futures market? Well, there's a lot there too. So let's try and make an analogy with VIX futures. 90 something percent of the time, a trend follower will be short VIX futures simply because of the contango. And so you don't get the long position out of that very often. If you try to run a long, flat program, you'd never be in the market, or very rarely. And when you get in the market, you're vulnerable to very sharp mean reversion, which can give you a very unattractive payout profile. So that leaves you with kind of two alternatives. One is I sort of talked about in the second leg down, which is to actually be short the futures somehow, and then overbuy out of the money calls, which again, hopefully I'm not giving away too much of things, but has a decent analogy in the natural gas markets, where either you're going to be mining 
substantial carry out of the trade if nothing happens. Or you've got this little lottery ticket kicker in should there be a spike of sufficient size. The danger in that trade is an upward trend, an uninspiring upward trend in the given market. But if you try to be long or flat in the VIX, I don't think you're going to be in the market enough to really do anything. And in many of these commodities that are depressed, the same problem arises. Now, long or flat in commodities in general is is pretty attractive to me too. But you're not going to get the early phases of a pop in a given market. So I kind of think of it as there being two regimes. One regime is spot price is low, futures curve is in severe contango. The trend guys are pretty short if they're long slash shorts. But there's a lot of money to be made there because if you look at the statistical dynamics down there, there the skewness is really in your favor. So if you look at the spot, if you condition the skewness of pretty much any commodity, let's take out metals for a moment, but energies and softs and grains and so on, you'll find that if the price is low, the skewness tends to be much more positive than if the price is high. Now, in practical terms, in human terms, what that means is if corn is trading at three bucks a bushel, which is very low for the reasonable historical window, the next $1 move is almost certainly going to be up. It's not going to be down. So you've really got the ads all stacked in your favor from the standpoint of convexity or asymmetry. And as the price goes higher, you lose that. So if wheat spikes as it did during the initial phases of Russia and Ukraine, then your odds are not so beneficial once the spike has occurred. And so this sort of idea becomes less attractive. Basically, that's when you may want to switch to a trend system. And again, it's a second leg down idea. I keep repeating myself, even though I pretend to do something new which is that when things really go wild, trend becomes attractive, assuming that the signal-to-noise ratio is high enough. And so I'm not suggesting that what I'm doing here is a replacement for trend in any sense. I do respect the long-slash-flat dynamic, but I want to capture that early skewness. And I think there's a lot of stuff you can get out of that pretty quickly. One of the areas I would love some clarification on is the idea of what does it actually mean for a commodity to be depressed? In the world of equities, we would say that price is not value. For an equity to be depressed, we're looking at some sort of price versus fundamental measure and potentially price versus fundamental measure versus both historical and peer group and the market and looking at a number of anchored relative value type components. When you say the market is depressed, the way you spoke about the example you just gave with corn at $3 is seems to be very much just price level. So I'm curious, what sort of features are you looking at when you talk about a commodity being depressed? Well, I think in one of the slides I sent you, and you're right that they were hideously complex, and our mutual friend Jason Buck slammed me for it, and he was right. Kind of stung, but it slammed me for it. A depressed commodity is basically one that has a low price relative to history, but isn't trending down too hard. If it's trending down too hard, I would say avoid it. You've seen very short-term episodes of negative prices, this, that, and the other. I'm thinking more in terms of the forgotten asset. Supply has been abundant for a while. No one's interested in the market. It's just kind of sloshing around in an uninspiring, 
non-volatile range and has been for here we're looking at fairly long horizons a couple of years maybe nothing's been going on i want to get a piece of that assuming that that lines up with the fundamental research that we're doing so i'm screening for those guys and i'm putting on long positions in a subset of them but really the screen is low price no action forgotten no one cares I want to dig a little bit more into the dynamics of the players in this space. You started to talk about it and you gave some examples. The idea here that both producers and consumers can heavily influence the pricing of commodity futures as well as options. And I want to start with maybe producers. Can you talk about the incentives of these market players and how those incentives maybe play out over time and influence their positioning in both the futures and the options markets and the sort of structural imbalances this might lead to? Grain marketing as advisors often talk about it is an attempt to smooth out the fluctuations in your revenue stream so that even though you will never sell at the high or buy at the low, you're trying to create a fairly stable stream of revenue to keep operating your business. And that immediately implies several things. One is that you won't be buying tail protection. Tail protection isn't your concern. Your concern is to have the farm running well the next year. Second thing is that you will try and take profits at certain levels, or you will be advised to take profits to lock in gains, to stabilize your revenue stream. And you're going to be pretty vol insensitive when you do that. Your average advisor is not going to tell you to buy a call spread instead of a call because there's a skew mispricing somewhere. They'll just say, oh, you've sold your crop and you still are bullish, buy a call. The strike is the strike, right? And so they'll say, well, look, corn could easily get up to six bucks a bushel. It's only trading at 475. So this thing's only 20 cents or 15 cents and it covers you for a year. And weather volatility may be picking up. You'll get that sort of advice and it might be very good advice. It's got nothing to do with the volatility surface for corn or the persistent mispricings, potential mispricings. And also, I have read through a lot of newsletters, and one guy who I really like is Sean Hackett. He produces a lot of advice for farmers and very good advice. But he'll never say something like, buy the 100% out of the money call in wheat, because it could get there and you can buy a boatload of that stuff for a fixed cost, because he's not going to be thinking about those kinds of lottery ticket outcomes, which farmers really psychologically don't seem to care that much about. I mean, they'd love to have it, but they just want to keep going with a stable revenue stream. And so they leave a lot of stuff on the table. I didn't start with knowing what the biases were. I started with running the numbers on all of these delta neutral structures and seeing which ones performed well. But backing out from there, I could sort of see where the biases might lie. And what I feel is that end users and producers are focused on controlling variability in outcomes far more than they are concerned about getting some extra edge in the way that they trade around their core business. So on the producer side, is it, and I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but is it fair to say that potentially the right tail is systematically underpriced because they're not looking for that lottery ticket purchase? Systematically ignored. I'm going to say that. Under or overpriced, you be the judge. 
Well, let's take the same question and flip it for consumers now. How do consumers in these markets operate and how do they think about trading the futures or options relative to their business economic interests? Well, this is harder for me to say, to be honest, because a lot of the companies that I looked at engage in a very wide range of businesses. And as I kind of mentioned, they can substitute one commodity for another in certain contexts. They can get it elsewhere. They have their own logistical setups. So it's very hard for me to pierce the veil of that. I can only presume that assuming that risk management is done well at any given point in time at a mega grain company, a mega energy company, or so on, that the relative value trades are done extremely well. But the average investor doesn't have access to any of that. I think it's a much more balanced thing. But if I just picked one example, like a food company, if I were a food company and I made a lot of bread products, cookies, whatever, cakes, all that stuff that may not be that good for you, but can be tasty, then I wouldn't be that worried if wheat went from, say, 6 to 6.50 per bushel. I'd be worried about it's going from 6 to $8, especially if I've been marketing wheat-based products recently, and that's where I'm hoping to make a push. So I, I'm not too sensitive about small up moves, but moderate up moves I am. And big up moves I don't think about. I don't read Nassim Taleb if I'm General Mills or Kellogg's or something. I probably don't. And so I looking through the open interest, historical open interest in these products, very little goes through the market with a low delta. Very little. And I would be very curious to know how the market makers or the swap dealers or whomever set their vol surfaces out there. But if I find out, I won't be coming on your show to say it because there's going to be more juice to be extracted from it. No pun intended. Very fair. Very fair. Well, you've joked both in our pre-call and you mentioned it here earlier in the session about being this idea of a paper farmer. So you're not actually holding the physical commodity, but you are very much putting yourself in the shoes of the producer to understand things like storage costs, transportation costs, insurance costs, how all those costs are conditional on the existing market dynamics, both sort of price, supply, and demand. Why approach the problem from this perspective? Well, it came from the VIX, basically. So in the VIX, I used to argue that if you could buy the spot VIX with a handle below 15 and just hang out for a while, it's the best diversifier in town. Eventually, it's going to go well above 15, and it's going to offset almost directly any losses that you may have in your S&P portfolio, let's say. And the same thinking, but the reality is that the crude approximation of that, which is to buy and roll the VIX futures, may have lost over 90% in the time that it took for the VIX to go from 12 to 20. So it's just so hideously expensive to hold that thing and roll this. So then I thought, well, if, as I mentioned in the beginning, Mark Roberts' strategy was to buy scrap steel and warehouse it and wait for the price to go up, how much does it actually cost to do that? So I did some back-of-the-envelope calculations in that messy deck that I sent you, which basically tried to estimate how much it costs to keep corn in the bin, in a steel storage bin, from month to month, which includes insurance costs, plane storage costs, electricity, to keep the fans on, to keep the temperature right, 
labor costs to pay someone to take a look every now and again. So you have a variety of costs for that. And then you have hauling, which is sticking that stuff on a truck. And I pretty much got into a rabbit hole that I may never have emerged from if I didn't have other things to do in my life, like trade vol. But I even looked at things like if you have a truck, how far is the nearest elevator station in Iowa? What's the average waiting time at harvest? Because there might be a line of trucks and you pay quite a bit by the hour. How much does it cost to keep your wheels in shape for a certain number of hours? What's fuel? All of that jazz. But forgetting that, what I found was that the cost of storage and transportation typically gets lower, although not much lower, as the price goes down, the spot price goes down, because insurance costs go down, depreciation, shrinkage, stuff like that becomes relatively less. But the cost of buying and rolling futures, let's say corn with $3 spot corn, five times a year is about a dollar versus, let's say, 50 cents or less for the real farmer. So I thought in terms of an analogy between the spot fix and the rolling futures, where my vol hedging is trying to get as close to the spot fix as possible while realizing that's not going to be achievable, but to get two thirds of the way maybe is a great goal. Here I tried to do the same thing. Can I hit the real farmer target through paper farming while providing the same sort of upside? And so it was basically this crazy idea was to proceed by analogy. I don't know anyone who's gone into farming with a vol quantity vol background, but why not? It's a great area to look at. I see some great merch coming out of this from your team. Some overalls, (laughs) some farm hats. All right. In your deck, you had this idea of what you call the tale of the forgotten commodity. This sort of goes back to this idea of the depressed price, things you're looking at. I wanted to flesh out a little bit more, and you mentioned it briefly, but I was hoping you could expand on it, how return skewness in these commodities is truly dependent upon level and maybe how that comes from the producer and consumer behavior. Well, this is part of a longer story of over and under investment in commodities over time. This isn't my story. The others have said it far more effectively than me. And I'll try and move to a different area just to illustrate the point with more clarity. If copper prices are low for an extended period of time, then there is far less incentive to engage in a long-term, i.e. a 10-year project, to build a new mine. Of course, there is some scrap available, but so there becomes underinvestment in a commodity over time. And when there's underinvestment, small changes in demand can have a big impact in the metals markets, at least on prices, because now there's no backup. There's no excess supply to put to work. And in the grains markets, it's a little bit different, but it's basically things are priced to perfection. The last five harvests have been good. No one cares, right? Managed money's not in the trade, really. You guys, trend followers, no one's in the trade. So all the positioning risk, well, in fact, you might even be short given curve dynamics. So all of the positioning risk is to the upside. And that's where the skew comes from, the upward skew when prices are low. The marginal buyer or seller determines the price in many commodities and If things are priced to perfection, the risk tends to be to the upside. How much of your approach in identifying some of these depressed markets is 
fundamental. You usually come at things from a purely quantitative perspective, but you have mentioned here and there some of the economic and fundamental market concepts that you look into and maybe even incorporate in a discretionary way. Can you comment on some of those aspects and how much they influence sort of your choice of markets? And this is more work for my colleagues, but I'm basically the engineer in this game. My colleagues have very good networks of contacts and they do their own fundamental research. And I mentioned Mark many times, he's doing a lot of his own fundamental research and he's been in the game of dealing with other providers in specialized areas for many years. So his job is basically to take the set of depressed commodities that I have found statistically. Anyone could do that. You could do that. Well, I mean, you could do a lot more, but you could certainly do that. But to find a subset where there could be a potential fundamental driver that skews the odds even more in our favor than otherwise. And I don't want to give you the impression that when we buy this depressed stuff, if it goes up, we'll just monetize. Rather, we're going to be chameleons. We'll morph into more trend followers who want to capture big moves instead of just cutting them once. So if wheat goes from six bucks to eight fifty a bushel, we're not going to say, oh yeah, now it's no longer cheap, so we're out. We'll happily latch onto that trend component. But in answer to your question, I am involved in a lot of this research. I'm not driving it. Now, I should add one more point, which is there's another component, which I'm not emphasizing in this show, but it's all of the SCT machine learning based models that allow us to trade around positions. So they're higher frequency models to maybe not scalp, but provide a little return engine that offsets some of our carry costs. That will be the topic for another day. But I'm really focused here on the notion of allowing clients to participate in a super cycle without having to worry about timing and with really strong participation should the market in question really rally. How do you think about liquidity constraints, particularly in the options market for some of these commodities where from a modeling perspective, maybe a further out of the money call option might look attractive, right? Might seem underpriced relative to what you might think fair value is. But to your point, there's very little open interest. Maybe the bid ask spread is really wide, or maybe there's actually a trade can't be done there. Market makers simply won't take the other side of that trade. How do you think about that from a modeling and research perspective? I think I get one swing at the plate every month or two to set a structure. And I can use the machine learning stuff or other methods to trade the futures actively. But I'd better create a bounded risk profile structure and run it. And so all the backtesting has basically assumed that I get one swing at the plate per cycle and I roll it into the next one, uh, with say, with a few weeks to go without being too specific. So that's an assumption. Now, if when I go into the market, I have to work limits and so on and so forth. It takes a little finesse to get the trades off. You have to be patient. But my feeling is that if it's options based, at least in the get go, and no one's interested in the market and hasn't been, you can sit around for a while and work. You don't want to work legs independently, but you can work little bits of the entire structure over time. And you might miss something, but it's the price you pay for doing it. In other markets, which we are involved in, like natural gas, there's ample liquidity. 
It's just some of the thinner ones where we have to accept that we're not going to be able to do that much. Now, if and when this part of my business grows, we'll obviously have to identify more specialist brokers who can help us in that game. And that is the plan. And would you expect in theory that exiting the trade is potentially easier because the options will have rolled towards at the money where there's more liquidity? Well, if the options are on side, exiting should be pretty easy. As long as the trades aren't cancelled, it's always that risk. Rolling out, uh, we don't want to roll out too late, but I don't think it's a big issue. It hasn't been so far. So I know you've applied this approach and concept to some grains, copper, natural gas, all of which you've mentioned already. What are the commonalities across these markets that make them appealing for your approach? And maybe what are some of the things that would disqualify a commodity ignoring the depressed price level? Well, copper is entirely different from grains and natural gas. Copper is a much less volatile market. It has different dynamics. It's got more action on the put side as well as the call side. Grains and so on are more one-sided where the call side of the equation dominates, especially when prices are low. So I wouldn't say that there's a one-size-fits-all, but if we are able to construct good-looking well-specified backtests, meaning not burning all the data, at least withholding other markets when we run models and then checking to see if a common theme works in all ags or in all softs or this or that, then we'll try and run with it, but we'll only run with it if we know or have some inkling as to why such a mispricing exists. The worst thing you want to do is try and rank option strategies according to performance when there are sort of embedded deltas in the strategy. So for example, if I ran a 50-20 delta call spread in beans and beans went up, that doesn't tell me that a 50-20 call spread is the best trade. It just tells me that it captured some of that upswing along the way. So you have to be very careful in the way that you identify mispricings. You can't just say, oh, this back test looked good. And then you have to try and see if you can hypothesize what the commonalities might be in the producer and user equation for balance of sides and work from there. One of the big differences between these markets that comes to mind for me is the shelf life, right? Corn will decay versus the same isn't necessarily true for scrap copper. Uranium or... Or uranium, that's a great example. How did the idiosyncrasies of these markets... Well, things like that decay factor impact the behavior of market participants and their resulting positions in derivatives markets. Well, the easy case to respond to is the non-perishable, small volume to store large dollar value things. There, I don't think I can do that much better than the Sprott ETFs in uranium or gold or even GLD. There are a handful of those. They're doing the job that I'm trying to do for corn or gas or something else. So I'm not trying to compete with them. But for the other markets, the perishable markets, obviously, or the markets where it takes a huge volume of space to store a fixed dollar value of goods, there, that's where I'm trying to make the difference. So that part is easy. I'm not sure if I replied directly to the part about the perishable stuff. Maybe you could repeat the question. I'm curious how the perishable nature changes the behavior of the producers or consumers. As one example, I would expect 
potentially producers of corn who have stored it, you know, there's a shelf life to that corn and their behavior, their price sensitivity may decrease as that corn gets closer and closer to its shelf life. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll give you a simple-minded example that is illustrative, even though it's an oversimplification. Let's say I'm a farmer and I have a storage bin, a steel bin in my farm. And the harvest was in October or November of a given year. Let's pick a year, 2023. Now I'm sitting in August 2024, and that grain is still in the bin. My harvest is not that far away. So I'm highly incentivized to sell that in the open market. I probably waited too long, especially if the harvest was a good one. But that is something that would incentivize excess selling in the market. Somewhat irrational, but excess selling in the market, and it would have an impact on pricing. And you can find a lot of these details if you look at future spread trades and how they evolve over time. That's something we've done a great deal of too. I wish I could say more about it, but there's some very, very well-defined patterns in the way that the front third and fifth live contract evolve over time for various markets. They don't point so much to the perishability, but more the seasonality, the extreme seasonality of the markets. Perishability is more pointed to in the fact that a lot of grain may have to be sold at certain points in time if there is a glut. But it's not something that comes in too closely because I think in an airtight container, this is another geeked out factoid or whatever, you can keep grain for quite a long time, several years, easily. I think even the theoretical bound is not bound, but theoretically you can keep wheat without too much shrinkage for eight years, six to eight years in an airtight container. But maybe that shows my lack of knowledge because I hear that an ant in captivity could live 100 years, right? But is that a meaningful statistic? I don't know. But it's less perishable than you might think. So that's quite significant too. Well, even if it's less perishable, I guess one could presume that there are storage limitations for these farmers and then increasing storage costs. And certainly while they don't want to potentially sell at any price, right? There is a limit to their storage capacity. But this highlights an area which I find always very fascinating when talking about commodities is that there are these strong seasonality patterns, particularly in crop-based commodities, right? We don't think of copper mining as necessarily being seasonal, though perhaps it is. I don't know. But certainly crop-based commodities have a defined seasonal pattern. And sometimes when we're talking about the futures or options on the futures, we're talking about quite literally different harvests, old harvest versus new harvest, different harvests in the future that are affected by dramatically different weather patterns. So I hoping you could talk a little bit about what drives the new crop versus old crop futures. We started to get into it there, maybe with some of the storage glut concepts and how these differences might impact calendar month choices for expressing the trades that you're looking to put on. Absolutely. Some simple things to say is that it seems like nobody cares about a harvest that's more than a year away. So I could buy a leap on the S&P, or I could go and even do an OTC contract going out 10 years on S&P downside. And people are interested in that because they know that's a big Vega bet. This is not the same game. People care about the current harvest and maybe next year's harvest. And that's pretty much it, at least if I look at open interest in futures and options. 
So that's an obvious difference. The other difference is kind of what I pointed to, which is if you look at which contracts hold their value the best, it's typically the old crop. So if I'm sitting in a given point in time, let's say I were in September of 2023 for corn, the new crop futures is probably most closely aligned with the December contract, which comes off in November. And the old crop contract might be July 2024. All things being equal, I'd buy the July. I accept that the July would be less responsive to some sudden event than the deck, than the December one, but it's going to hold its value better. So that's more attractive. And why? Because of some reasons that I pointed to earlier, even if I buzz through them, namely that there is no new supply coming, at least in North America. Maybe in Brazil there is, so that complicates things, but there's no new supply forthcoming in the region. So any supply that is going to come into the market has to come from the bin or the elevator, the existing crop. And so there's less wiggle room at that point. Now, if the harvest should be bad, which does happen not very rarely, let's say I'm making up a number every five or six years, you'll have a bad harvest. Then the new crop suddenly becomes extremely interesting. And so there's an immense amount of work that's done even using a lot of modern machine learning satellite technology techniques to identify how the crop is doing. And that is a business that is beyond my scope to a large extent, at least at this point. But the new crop contract tends to decay hard in the median case or in the majority of cases, but can come to life if something in the early to middle phases of the harvest should crop up. With these seasonality-based patterns, I'm curious, with the implementation you're trying to hit, which is the low cost of carry, high convexity, upside exposure, do you find that there's enough expression in a futures spread play, or do you still have to ultimately express the bet in the options market? I like to do both. I think the futures actually has a bigger kick, a slightly bigger kick if the market rallies than the option structures I'm typically putting on, but it's more expensive to carry. I'm not doing calendar spreads in this particular program. We do them in other programs, but certainly the option stuff that I'm trying to do and the future stuff is more potent than trading a spread. Unless, of course, you just don't trade much of the spread. I mean, a lot of people will say trade calendar months to try and attenuate the beta in a trade, but one could always argue just do less of the front month then. I mean, in that gas, of course, you see tons of spreads going through and everything is bounded and lots of things are attempted to be bounded and the tails are attempted to be cut off simply because it's such a volatile commodity. But one could argue that just doing less would be better. For me, unless you have deep insights into where the pockets of value are, for me, I prefer doing more but using options to control my risk outcomes. So I made the absolutely arbitrary decision a couple of episodes ago that this is officially a new season. And with a new season comes a new end of episode question. And for you, I feel like it's a little bit of a silly question because the question is, what have you been obsessed with lately? And I think I can clearly answer your obsession lately has been exactly this research. So I'm changing the question for you, which is outside of this research. What have you been obsessed with lately? 
Ooh, I don't want to go into personal issues with my son, but he's been applying to college. That has been a major obsession for me. I'd like to ramp up on my reading. I really would like to ramp up on my reading of fiction. I spend day after day reading market-related stuff or looking at data, going to meetings with machine learning colleagues and so on. I'm trying to ramp up my reading at this point. I'm kind of obsessed with doing that in the holiday season. So if that counts, I'll take it on board. Maybe I'll do a marathon next year. That's great. I love it. And I guess last piece here, where do you see this research taking you going forward? I know it's something you have been obsessed with over the last nine months. You're looking to bring this program to market. How do you see the research and the implementation evolving going forward in 2024? Well, I'm a big fan, as I suspect you might be, of Christopher Cole, Chris Cole. And I always liked everything he wrote, and I still do. And I love the way he spells things out. It's almost a romantic pursuit that he is on toward like Don Quixote or something, finding something very beautiful. And I find it very inspiring. And I thought that his ideas and your ideas, frankly, with return stacking and so on, and what the pirates of finance guys are doing, and I think you're kind of a pirate too, like Jason Buck and Taylor Pearson and so on, are fantastic. And I'm big fans of all of that. I'm trying to come up with a module that may not fit into any one of these programs, but which is kind of satisfying some of these desires in a meaningful way. Because I know there are a lot of very, very accomplished commodities hedge funds out there. But what I wanted to do was to think from the standpoint of, yeah, they might generate a lot more alpha than a structured solution but you don't know where they're going to get the alpha from. They could be long, they could be short, they could be trading a spread. They might be varying their risk quite a lot over time. How can someone go out and deliver something predictable with edge in a way that clients who want long commodities exposure, who believe some of these stories, can get it in an efficient way? And so that's kind of where I see this fitting. It remains to be seen where it will be ideally placed. But that's kind of my early thinking about it. Well, Hari, thank you for joining me. I appreciate you sharing the new research and best of luck in the new year. And to you, sir. Congratulations on your continued growth. Thank you. Long may it continue. <laughs>